We are live from the Empire of Lies, an oasis of truth in the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan. Joined today on a Tuesday by our guest co-host Jason Goodman from Crowdsource of Truth. This is the backstory. Hey Jason, how you doing? I'm great, Lee. How are you? Good. Looking forward to the show with you today. Likewise. So let's introduce the guest. We have two great guests today. First, the legendary Joe Loria from Consortium News. Consortium News, of course, started by journalist Robert Perry. And I've been talking to Joe in a while, and it's an honor and privilege to have Joe Loria with us in the first hour. In the second hour, great friend of the show, great analyst from weeklyworker.uk, Daniel Zarr is joining us. And of course, our callers will be popping in from time to time at 202-521-1320. And Jason, can you remember the name of the show? Yes, this is The Backstory. You've never failed to remember the name of the show, Jason. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. So how's it going? We have the new pictures from the from space. That's oh, yeah. one of the big stories today. Are you impressed? Um, well, I get yelled at if I say I was sort of anticlimactic when I saw it. It didn't really impress me, no. Perhaps I don't understand yeah, well, it that's fully. Why, that's, that's why I asked the way I asked. The technology... The fact that you're getting any picture back from right. however many light years is impressive. But the pictures yes. themselves, there's a reason I think they built up the hype and didn't release the pictures until later. Does it make sense? Mm. Yeah, it was – It was. I mean, let, let me just put it right out there. It was somewhat disappointing. I was like, really? This looks like somebody could have just done this in Photoshop. How do we know this is anything? Right. And that's what – they were delaying the release of the pictures, and that's why yeah. I think they were. And I'll tell you, that's a good summary of the entire Biden administration. Yeah. I think it's a good metaphor. You could have done the whole thing in right. Photoshop, Lee. We'd be better off. <laughs> yes. And I also thought it was bizarre that Hunter Biden was in a couple of the pictures. I found that Space. weird. <laughs> you weighing crack, no doubt. Yes. Oh yes. my God! Who, first of all, obviously buying, possessing, using crack—terrible idea. Video recording yourself doing it. Well, then you're the smartest guy Joe Biden knows. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a memory you want to preserve. Right. You know what I'm saying? You, oh, that was yes. great crack. Remember? Yes. yes. The hooker enjoyed it so much. Yeah, well, exactly. He's got a category. You know he. Must have a database just to keep track of all the different hookers. <laughs> and there's a lot. It's not it's not funny. I mean, this is a desperate man who obviously it's amazing that he's still alive. Well, I pointed out yesterday that there's an aspect of this. Remember, not personally, but you learned about it in school. Remember the French Revolution? Yes. And the guillotine and everything. Remember that? Right. Yeah. Off with their heads. Part of that, the reason let them eat cake 
and the Biden version is let them eat crack. But the reason <laughs> let them eat cake has preserved through history is because what does that tell you about Marie Antoinette and she didn't the people? Care. It's it's not about a policy that Marie Antoinette and King Louis had. Does that make sense? I think we you first should explain the- for people. People might not understand. She wasn't saying go have a birthday cake because that sounds kind of good. She's talking about the crumbs that cake up on the bottom of a, an oven after you cook bread. Yes, that's right. And what it showed is a certain arrogance of the people in power. It is not right. about their policies. And so I've said this. While what's important on the Biden laptop and the phone is the stuff about the corruption. Yeah. Is the stuff about Joe Biden knowing about business dealings that Hunter Biden was having. Well, that's important. The crack hooker stuff is an indication of the arrogance of power and what people who are privileged, you know, like I say, Hunter Biden, however, he won the lottery of opportunity. Yeah. He's got money, right? Absolutely. Influence everything. And, and went to the best schools. He's got family. a law degree. Right. And what does he do with it? And Throws it the, away. The, the arrogance and the degeneracy. And forget, yeah. all I mean by degeneracy is just that. It's not a moral thing for me. I, I don't, I'm not saying it like, oh, he's bad. I'm saying, oh, mm. he's degenerate. He's out there. He parties hard, right? He does. In a way that most people can't identify with. I think this is going to be responsible for a lot of the anger of the citizens. Mm -hmm. But so will, as I talked about, environmental policy. And part of the reason environmental policy, the green agenda of the new, new world order, part of the reason, you know what, one of the big arguments, every time they have a conference about the green agenda, what pisses people off is the fact that the people get there in private jets. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing. It's what angered the people in the French Revolution. And I pointed out this Thursday, the 14th, is Bastille Day. Oh, right. That's the anniversary of Bastille Day. Yeah. And I think the leaders revolution. around the world, in with the Dutch farmers, with the Sri Lankan revolt, that was about the green agenda. That was about environmentalism. And it's about these arrogant, wealthy, degenerate leaders saying to people, let them eat solar panels. Yeah, you're right. But don't interrupt our private jet. And by the way, (laughs) and the private jet might be, might have a, a crack horse tortoise because it makes the trip go quicker. (laughs) I've heard. But what do you think, Jason? Do you think leaders are are completely arrogant? Yes. I mean, in the case of Joe Biden, you know, I know I'm prone to insult him and, you know, make all kinds of hyperbolic statements. But the man is totally incapable, not only of being the president of the United States, he's incapable of carrying out any role of responsibility. 
because he has just, you know, the guy's had two brain surgeries in his life. He's 79 years old. And while there are some people who can be spry well into their 80s and even 90s, he's not one of those people. And I've known many people who have had major surgeries. They uh, normally have large pharmaceutical regimens that they need to take daily. All of these things take a toll. Everybody has a different metabolic profile. And you can't just say somebody is this age, so they are or are not good. But the fact is, Joe Biden, whatever age he is right now, is not at all suited to carrying out the high-stress job that he is in. We even heard them say that they rearranged his travel schedule because they felt Europe followed by the Middle East would be too intense for him. That's what you do with your aging parents, not the person who's supposed to lead the most powerful nation of the world. I was listening to Biden today and he he when he talks, he does the same thing. My voice now after a stroke that I hear right. sometimes, sometimes my my voice is is certainly better than when I had a stroke, but yes. it's somewhat halting sometimes. And true. that's not intentional. And right. does that make sense? Yes, I I can hear it. I was talking to a friend I hadn't talked to since the stroke in a while mm -hmm. last night. And he said, mm -hmm. your voice sounds. I said, well, I had a stroke. He said, OK. But the yeah. haltingness, I sometimes hear that in Biden. Absolutely. Do you hear this? You hear the same thing? I do. And the way that he moves looks like someone who I mean, look, Lee, you are struggling in a recovery from a serious medical incident. I think you're doing a fantastic job. But if somebody came to you and said, we want you to uh, do some incredibly high stress thing, running some new company, doing this and that, traveling all around the world, you might take your, your current health into consideration and it might play a role in you making a decision as to whether you would or would not do that. And it might be a different decision than you would have made, say, five or 10 years ago or or six months ago. But right. I will say that <laughs> I am more with it than Joe Biden. Oh, one. I am more with it. I didn't mean My to speech. imply that at all. Yeah. Watch out, pal. So <laughs> let's go, go to calls. 202-521-1320. Owl killer. You're on. Then Ingrid will get to you after. Owl Killer, what's thought. on your mind? Second, two best guests are always Monday and Tuesday, Carmine and Jason. Um, Thank you. So Tucker did a great segment yesterday talking about Sri Lanka and this ESG thing, um, which is environmental, social, and governance, which is basically this, this, this three-component uh, um, model for the rest of the world and how the World Economic Forum um, said that how we're going to make Sri Lanka rich by 2025 with uh, ESG, which uh, they conveniently took down. But Tucker had the the original uh, headline um, last night. Um, so I'll tell you something. I see Gaston flags flying in Chile, Argentina, parts of Colombia, South Africa. Um, Sri Lanka is holding Gaston flags. So I was actually... Yesterday, I was a little more pessimistic with the whole Sri Lanka thing, how, how I figured they were going to blame, and the same thing with the Netherlands, how they're going to try to blame the farmers and the producers the same way that the Soviets did. I actually do. I'm actually to the point now where I think that they have bitten off more than they can chew. And, Jason, I agree with you from Saturday's show where you said 
these really aren't the smartest people. No. Uh, get, again, like with Bill Gates, somebody like a Bill Gates, is he was given like I don't was given the whole thing with IBM and his mother and his father with Planned Parenthood. He was basically created yeah. this moment, and it doesn't take a genius get on i mean microsoft was broken up for being a monopoly in the 90s and rehabilitated his image you don't need to be a genius when you're getting unfair um preferential treatment from the federal government you don't need to be a genius when you can print money out of thin air now they've run into the issue which is people at the end of the day people are are the are the power and that's where i think that this you don't need people anymore because they're scared of us and that that's really what i you talk about the French Revolution and Bastille Day, um, like that is, I think that is, that's the ugly side of where things can go. But people, we actually do have the power, and that's why it's so important. I think somebody has to come up with a message where this race stuff has to end, that stuff, yeah. and it's really humanity versus this Val uh, Noah Harari, somebody like that, or the Klaus Schwab agenda where. Oh, somebody like a uh, Yuval Noah Harari. I yeah. much can dissect what he is. He's mad that he's a homosexual, and I don't hate him for that. But I, I think he's mad that he is, and that's why he hates God and he hates humanity. And wow, not, you know, no, that's really what I think it is. He's projecting his hate at himself on everybody else. And unfortunately, history's full of people that get themselves in positions of power because they're driven to it. And they tend uh, more than more than not power tend to be horrific human beings, and I, I I think now somebody needs to come with the message: Hey, all of us, it's team humanity. This green agenda, this you know, who comes up with a transition without what you're going to transition to being in place? But just the idea of that is insane. Al Killer, let me ask you quick: What kind of flag did you say they were carrying in Sri Lanka? The Gadsden flag, the um, the uh, don't tread on me, the the yellow flag. Oh, oh, wow, huh? Who gave them that? How do they know about that? Yeah, I mean, it's weird that the American flag showed up in Hong Kong too. That sounds very CIA, doesn't it? I don't, I don't think Sri Lanka. See, I really don't think they care about Sri Lanka, to be honest with you. That Hong Kong's a different story. But I, I just right. recognize that as all our faults in this country. The only country, like, you know, sometimes you miss what you're sh- shooting at, but, you know, if we are the best example of anything that's ever been produced um, for, for a government. Yeah. Well, Greg Alcoller, and here's a suggestion to someone out there with graphic skills. We need an updated version of the Gadsden flag. Do you know what I mean, Jason? It looks very yeah. 18th century. Use Helvetica for <laughs> font. <laughs> it uses that don't tread on me is in that old style, you know, like it was drawn with a feather. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? Who did so an update it? on that. I guess Gadsden. Right. Which I can never spell. Yeah. I always know I'm spelling it wrong. It's one of those words. Let's go go to Ingrid. Thanks for waiting, Ingrid. 202-521-1320 is the number to call. Ingrid, you have called that number. You're on the air. Thanks. You started out in in space, and just as an aside, hard science is usually pretty boring unless you have enough of a background to appreciate the little squiggles. But 
What do you think, you and Jason, since you're both pretty tech-savvy guys, about this phone that Tesla is coming out with? I'm hearing it's going to be better than um, any of the current phones, the satellite phone, and you're going to be able to use it in every country, and it's going to have everything like the uh, everything any iPhone has. Only it's also going to be a lot cheaper. What do you what do you have to hear about that, or what do you think about it? I think well, without having seen and played with it, it's a good idea, and it's using the satellites that Elon Musk has launched, and we'll be talking about them soon. Because I'll say this: cell phone development for about five, six years. I've not seen really anything new. It's it's all iterations that, you know, next year's phone is a vaguely better camera. Does that make sense, Jason? Well, I got to pause everybody for a second because I'm pretty sure this concept of the Tesla phone is a trick that I don't think Tesla has ever announced that. I've been seeing you know, people making 3D renders and Photoshop pictures of Elon Musk with a Tesla phone. I thought at first it's a pretty good idea. Why not take the operating system from that screen in the car and just make a Tesla OS phone or whatever? But I haven't seen any official announcement that they're actually doing that, yeah. are they? Maybe I was fooled by the, the photos or whatever. I haven't yeah, heard I don't that official doing, announcement. I don't think, but that's I don't a think great segue that. for the clip. Now, you, do you remember the red phone? Uh, yes, I do. And it had a 3D camera and a 3D screen. I thought it was the stupidest idea I ever heard of. Do you agree that cell phones development is kind of plateaued on this current level for a while? Uh, I think, yes, there's there's not too many. Like, I currently have an iPhone. I'm not buying every year the iPhone when it comes out. It's like I had an iPhone 10 until they came with 12. I have a 12 now, and I wasn't that impressed with the 13. Maybe I'll get a 14. But I really need a camera improvement or some sort of real tangible improvement to make, because it's already doing, I mean, like what else do you want to add to Microsoft Word, for instance, that's going to make me want to buy? I'm just typing on that, and it, spell check. I mean, what do you need in there? How much more can you put in this phone? Yes, uh, I, I agree. But the idea of using Elon Musk's satellite network no, that would be a big difference. That would be a big difference. That's, yes. And I also think the, the cost factor, because these phones now are about a thousand bucks for the yeah. top of the line. Right. And that's too much. Yeah. I'm not saying it's too much. It kind of isn't too much. It's a fair price given what the technology right. is. But right. come on. It's a phone, damn it. It's a I've lot of money. <laughs> Ever since my divorce started a couple of years ago, I'm no longer upgrading my phone every year either. Apparently, I'm on a relationship every year. But uh, <laughs> the the phone the the phone that's gallows humor. But the yes. phone I haven't I use actually an old phone. I use an iPhone seven. Oh wow! Because I could buy it very affordably. Yeah. And then use one of those services like. I use Visible, but like Mint or Visible, where I'm paying 40 bucks a month for sell everything. Mm -hmm. Does it make sense? So I figured yeah, out a way to do phones yeah. on the cheap. Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're getting probably 
90% of what you would get for 10% of the money. Yes, right. It does everything I need. And, and the phone, I can talk on the phone, et cetera, yeah. and take pictures. And so I want to play something with all the discussion of the Second Amendment lately. This is a stunning clip of Donald Trump shooting himself in the foot once again. And I say that because Carmine Sabia, who was our host yesterday, was angry about this last night on Twitter. He asked, why does Trump have to pick a fight with everybody? Yeah. This is a uh, unforced error, as far as I'm concerned. There was no reason Elon Musk didn't start a fight with Trump. Right. But let's play the clip of Trump of Trump at a rally going after Elon Musk for no reason. Hit it. Another one of our highest priorities under a Republican Congress will be to stop left-wing censorship and to restore free speech in America. And go out, by the way, while I'm here and sign up now for Truth Social. It's hot as a pistol. And you see that I pull that one right. Leon, I tell you what, Elon, Elon is not going to buy Twitter. Where did you hear that before? From me. From a fake account. She says fake. A lot of them. Nah, he's got himself a mess. You know, he said the other day, oh, I've never voted for a Republican. I said, I didn't know that. He told me he voted for me. So he's another artist, but he's not going to be buying it. He's not going to be buying it. Although he might later, who the hell knows what's going to happen. He's got a pretty rotten contract. I looked at his contract, not a good contract. Well, that's why he's getting out of it. <laughs> yeah, I don't right? know. It's not a, not a smart thing for Trump to do, because I think the people who like Trump like the First Amendment and want Elon Musk to restore the First Amendment. And he just alienated a lot of people in his base, including you and me. And he's done many things to do that. And and the way he does it, too, is Elon Elon, you know, yeah, the way he does it too is offensive. And furthermore, hot as a pistol is not a an apt crap. way to describe true social. Agreed. True social is as hot as a bodega knife. <laughs> oh man! I'm saying well, it's a and it talk about a mess. And I saw is. one of the Trump cultist people on Twitter on. On my Twitter feed last night, said Trump has a history of doing things, and I said, "Well, what about the border wall?" To accuse Trump of of, of he's efficient, as opposed to Elon Musk. Elon Musk built the mega factory. Have you seen Gigafact- the mega factory? Yeah. The, the gigafactory. It's impressive the as hell. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's very impressive, and it's impressive. I will say, not just technically. But in the history of manufacturing, right. very impressive, the way the whole thing is organized, mm-hmm. and that's an impressive achievement. Absolutely. To me, the Gigafactory is as more impressive, actually, than the Tesla automobile. Would you agree oh, with that, yeah. Jason? Totally. I mean, here's the thing. You and I, Lee, have been involved in companies and startup efforts that have tried to do things that, you know— in certain cases, maybe haven't ever been attempted before. And when you're inventing something and doing something new, that's different than going into hotel development or real estate development. And I'm not saying that's easy. I'm just saying 
to have the confidence and the ingenuity and the bold demeanor to literally say, you know what, everybody says this can't be done, I'm going to just do it. That is not something that everybody can do. And I think that Trump just made an enemy out of somebody that could have been an ally. And as you said, it was just for no reason at all. And I think that's the reason. The reason it makes me skeptical, more skeptical on Trump, is because he's picking a fight for no reason. It's not even who he's picking it with. I wouldn't care. If he was up there, you know, and uh, if he was complaining about an inconsequential actor who'd never said anything about him, for instance— Let's say it was nobody, right? Let's say Trump went after, I don't know. Matthew McConaughey. uh, Matthew McConaughey for no reason. And Matthew McConaughey hasn't said he didn't like Trump. I know the way Trump is. If Elon Musk had come out and said something against Trump, and Joe Rogan recently said he doesn't want to have Trump on his show. Yeah. And I think that a nice combative interview with him would be in order, Joe. Not they oh, listening yeah. to me, but I I I I'd say, I'm I believe the solution for bad speech is more speech. Yes. So, you know, but Joe Loria is online, correct? Command Central. Okay, so I'm thrilled to have Joe Loria from Consortium News with us, talking to Joe once again, and he's a really smart guy and doing a great job of maintaining. Robert Perry's high standards of our consortium news. Let's take a short break and we'll come back and talk to him on the backstory. backstory and on the radio in the empire of lies capital washington dc on 105.5 fm and am 1390 joined now by the great joe Loria from consortium news hey joe how you doing oh it's been a long time that we've spoken together it, indeed it's been a long time you well yeah i'm okay i've just returned from two and a half years outside the u.s uh, four days ago it's getting a little i was going to say Dusted again, yeah. You seem like a world traveler. And I saw a, a picture of you recently. Uh, I, I'm not knocking this because I've done the same thing. You seem to have grown a beard. You, I have indeed, yes. You have yes. to imagine on the radio, yes. <laughs> I have a beard. So, so let's talk about... Let me ask you a question first. Describe who Robert Perry is for people who may, may not be familiar with him. Yeah. That's and a good it, yeah. Bob yeah, Perry ahead, was probably the premier investigative reporter of his day. He worked for the Associated Press for many years, uh, starting in the Rhode Island, the province Rhode Island Bureau, moved to Washington in 1976. By the mid eighties, he was breaking some of the biggest Iran Contra stories during the Reagan administration. Mm-hmm. We know about, the all over north and his role because of Bob's reporting at AP, but uh, and also about Iran Contra uh, skullduggery and the uh, selling of cocaine from Nicaragua back into the U.S. in exchange uh, on planes that were sending weapons to the Contras. Uh, 
So Bob broke very consequential stories back then. But his editors were getting frustrated with him and did not really want to publish these stories. They didn't want to run the Oliver North story. But they they wanted they uh, wanted more and more sources, and uh, they even said at one point, "Can't you get Oliver North just to confess to this thing?" So Bob got fed up <clears throat> with the corporate media, and he he quit AP, went to Newsweek, but it was pretty much the same there. Yeah. Senior editors told him uh, that he couldn't publish stories that because they weren't good for the good of the country. In other words, for the good of the leaders. Of the country. So in 1995, Bob started consortiumnews.com, which is one of, if not the first, certainly independent news sites in the United States. Uh, it came out five days before salon.com and months before the New York Times and LA Times and Washington Post went online with their uh, web pages. So it's a very old site for the internet age, it's uh, ancient history. And Bob, unfortunately, left us in uh, January of 2018, and I took over as editor in 2018. I've been uh, at the helm for four years. It's been a rough ride, and uh, it's been exciting and difficult. But uh, yeah, thank you for what you said at the beginning, because uh, that is what uh, we're trying to do here, is continue Bob's legacy at Consortium News, which is to present the side of the story, the angles that are left out purposely from corporate media, and with, without which you really can't understand uh, a lot of events going on around us. So there, it's a real effort to fill in gaps and take a critical point of view of American foreign policy in particular, and as well as domestic policy. Well, when someone's lost, like Bob Perry uh, or my friend Andrew Breitbart, people like to play a game of, well, what would they think? You don't know what I'm saying? If he were alive today, what would he yeah. think of this news event? But right. about this Ukrainian-Russian war, we can't guess everything. But because Robert Perry was in the Oliver Stone pre executive produced film Ukraine on Fire, Robert Perry was way ahead of this Ukraine-Russia story. Do you think that's fair to say? Absolutely. I was on Democracy Now! this morning, believe it or not. I don't know what got into their heads to have me on. But uh, that came up, and I mentioned that Bob was extremely ahead of this story on the coup in 2014. He was one of the first to point out the details of that, and he wrote a story in 2015 uh, that, uh, that we should be worried about nuclear war over Ukraine. And I thought it was a little bit over the top, Frank. I never told that to Bob, but I thought he was going a little too far with that one. But now, in the context of what we're living through, we're, we clearly are closer to a possible nuclear confrontation, then certainly since the Cuban Missile Crisis. He understood yeah. the consequences of Russiagate. He was one of the first, if not the first, to debunk, start debunking that story. He uh, understood the consequences of the tensions about Russiagate and the coup uh, and the backing of the Ukrainian coup government against the Donbass, the Russian ethnic people who resisted the coup. Uh, he understood what that meant for U.S.-Russian relations and what road we were going down. He would, I think we could predict what Bob would be writing right now about this. And in a way, I'm glad he's not around to see it, to see that many things that he feared are coming true. But, and uh, even though he gave all these warnings and he pointed in that direction, it's still a shock uh, to me that he was right about so much of it, that it's actually come to pass. Uh, the idea, you know, during the 2016 election, many people say, Hillary, if Hillary Clinton wins, we're going to have a war with Russia. Well, that was kind of rhetoric, but now we got Biden and we're having almost a proxy war with Russia now. They actually followed through again on what Bob 
was in the forefront of pointing out. So he was an extremely important reporter on that and many other issues, but particularly Russia-U.S. relations, Ukraine and Russiagate. And we should go back and read. And I've been, when the when the invasion began in February, I started to republish a lot of Bob's old story to show how accurate he was. Well, let me ask you a question about what Bob would have thought about something that I, I really feel confident you will feel comfortable answering. And it's not about a specific policy in the war or a specific battle. It's about the media coverage. I think you know 100%, because you share it probably, what Robert Perry would have thought of the media coverage of this war. The media coverage, I've never seen it as bad as posting, doing stenography for anything Ukraine says and burying the other side of the story. Do you feel confident? What, what, and what do you think of the media coverage? Well, like Bob Perry, I come out of the mainstream media. Bob worked for AP and Newsweek. I worked for the Boston Globe and the Wall Street Journal and the Sunday Times of London and a whole bunch of other mainstream newspapers. In fact, that's the reason for the word consortium, I should point out. It's a consortium of journals who've had their articles suppressed by their editors, as Bob did. That's how I first started writing in 2011. The Wall Street Journal kept suppressing a story I was writing about Palestine at the UN. So uh, I have the same criticisms Bob has, since we were both on the inside, except for the lead up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. This might actually be worse than that. That was pure jingoism and uh, banging in the drums of war and mobilizing a population for what was a completely unjustified invasion that everybody in Washington pretty much agrees with now, but did not then. Um, one of the papers I worked for, I should mention back then, was a Canadian newspaper chain that published a Montreal Gazette and the Ottawa Citizen. I got fired from that because I would not cover the lead up to that invasion the way they wanted. I got a call from the foreign editor of that chain who told me that his son was a Canadian Marine and I we had to support the war. And I said, sorry, I my job is to report what's going on at the UN Security Council, and what's happening there is they're not supporting this uh, this bid for a resolution to authorize an invasion of Iraq. On the day of the invasion, I was sacked. So, uh, like Bob, you know, I had my problems with the mainstream media, and that's why Concern News is such an important place for journalists who to come out of the cold from the mainstream. This coverage of Ukraine is. You, you might you're absolutely right, Lee. I think this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Certainly since. The invasion of Iraq. And it is more than stenography. It is pure. Uh, it, it comes when you leave out the other side of the story, which you're left with is pretty much uh, propaganda, uh, a word I think is overly used. But in this case, I think it's apt. We only hear what Ukrainian government officials say and what uh, U.S. government officials say. And we're supposed to accept that as what's going on, particularly on the ground. And what's going on on the ground is very difficult to determine most of the time in a war. Both sides lie in wars. And it's only when both sides agree on a fact that I accept it as having happened. Um, for example, when that Russian ship was sunk in the Black Sea, they both said it was sunk in the Black Sea. So uh, I accepted that. But then Russia said it had an accident. And Ukraine said they shot it with missiles. So we're back to square one. What really happened there? There's been so many events like that in this war. But I think a consensus is now finally growing. They just cannot deny the reality anymore that uh, Russia is winning this war on the ground. We're starting to see that seep into the coverage of the mainstream media. But the biggest sin, again, is a sin of omission. They have whitewashed totally all of the causes of this conflict. 
the many causes and the historical context in which it has taken place, going back 30 years, certainly, uh, and certainly since 2014. We just do not uh, read that in the paper. And when you look at historians who uh, uh, examine the causes of the Second World War, they will very many of them will say that the onerous conditions imposed on Germany in the Versailles Treaty after the First World War led to the rise of Nazism and the Second World War. And none of those historians are accused of being Hitler apologists. But when you try to explain what are the causes of this conflict, uh, you're immediately branded a Putin apologist or a Kremlin stooge. Yeah. And this is so outrageous because they are failing to and on purpose to leave out what the causes are. And of course, the causes go back 30 years from the time of the expansion of NATO in the 90s, when even Boris Yeltsin, the puppet of the United States, complained about this. And in the 2007 Munich Security Conference speech by Putin, when he blasted the U.S. for their unilateral attack on Iraq uh, four years earlier, and for the fact that no one remembers that the U.S. had promised, and the West, other Western governments promised not to expand NATO. We had Jack Matlock, the last ambassador to the Soviet Union, George Kennan, the architect of the containment policy, and so many, William Burns, who was the brother, uh, uh, director who was then a Russian ambassador, all of them said, even Joe Biden in 1997, as the chairman of the, Senator Biden, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, all said that if we expand NATO, this is going to cause a hostile reaction, even war with Russia at some point. And they continue to do that. And Russia's overtures to, uh, in fact, Putin wanted to join NATO. He said he asked Clinton, and of course he was laughed at. So these efforts by Russia after Yeltsin, even by Putin, to still have good relations with the West were dismissed. And when Putin made that speech, the alarm bells went off in Washington. And uh, that was the beginning of the end for Putin. They've been trying to displace him to put someone back like Yeltsin in there again. U.S.'s goal is global dominance. And if you're going to have governments in Beijing and in Moscow in particular who are not playing along, they've got to be removed if possible, neutralized, uh, weakened. And this is the object of this war, which the United States wanted. They wanted Russia to invade. Uh, there's ample evidence for that, which I can run through if you want me to. Uh, they got the war they wanted. I think it was a trap that Russia uh, felt they had to go into. Uh, it's not over yet, but the mainstream media will tell you none of these reasons. The others, of course, are the Donbass uh, rebellion, as I mentioned, and the Minsk Accords for eight years were never implemented. Russia in December put forward treaty proposals to NATO and the U.S. to create a new security architecture in Europe and said there would be technical military response if they weren't taken seriously, if these, these uh, treaties, they weren't taken seriously, these proposals. There was a technical military response. The United States knew that Russia would very likely invade. And on the day of the invasion of February 24, Joe Biden at the White House in a press conference was asked, what good are the new sanctions when the previous sanctions didn't prevent the invasion? And Biden said there were, those sanctions were never meant to prevent the invasion. They're meant to punish Russia and make the people see what he's doing to them, you know, to rise up against Putin. He admitted it there as, we, as well as he did in Poland when he said it bluntly that the aim of this operation is to overthrow the government of Vladimir Putin. And, and why is that a problem? Because the U.S. should not be overthrowing governments. That's up to the Russian people. And again, the aim is to get rid of governments that are obstacles to U.S. world dominance. And this is a sick, megalomaniacal policy run by not sociopaths so much as sometimes sadists that we have here running our government because they are 
absolutely drunk with power and need more of it. And the American people totally distracted and they're given cover by the mainstream media who never explains any of this to them. And brands, people like me who say things like this and report these things as being agents of the Kremlin or uh, conspiracy theorists, etc. This is the game they got going. It's really dangerous. It really is. Our guest co-host today is Jason Goodman. Jason, say hello to the great Joe Loria and give a question for Joe. Well, Joe, I've been listening to what you're saying, and I agree with everything you're saying. It's, it's. Can you talk to us a bit about how does it make you feel to see so many people in the United States basically falling for this and not questioning the narrative and just you know blindly supporting Ukraine? Well, as I said, I was in Australia for two years, two and a half years, oh, and I spent right. two, two months in Europe, and it's the same. It may be worse in Europe. The anti-Russian fervor there is even perhaps more hysterical than here in the United States. Uh, they're closer to the conflict for one thing. They're, they've got, uh, they're more entangled with Russia economically, especially in Germany, than the U.S. is. Uh, what does it make me feel? It makes me feel a successful psychological operation has been conducted against the population in the, through the mainstream media in particular, where, again, you suppress uh, all of these causes of this war and uh, you, what you're left with is just a madman and the uh, imperialist in the Kremlin who was just lashing out because he woke up one morning and stuck his finger on the globe and said, uh, OK, today I'll invade Ukraine. I mean, there's no doubt that Putin has spoken about uh, Nova Russia, that part of South, of South and Eastern Ukraine that Catherine the Great founded in the 18th century, that there's a kinship with Russia, that there's mostly Russian speakers there. But Crimea would never become part of Ukraine, and this war would never have happened, and nor will there be other annexations probably coming without the coup in 2014, the, institution, the installation of an anti-Russian government, the war against the people in Donbass that nobody talks, another thing that's excised from the corporate media coverage. None of these things would have happened if it weren't for the provocation by the United States of Russia. It certainly is a provoked war. And um, they, are, they did it in order for three reasons they needed this invasion. One, the economic war. You cannot sanction another country's central bank without a damn good reason. No matter how dictatorial you may, may feel, there are still uh, sectors in, the, in a society that are going to question what you do. So it's not a total uh, control that the government has of whatever they want. There's still going to be some kind of answers that have to be given. So you needed this invasion. Now they put these enormous sanctions on Russia, which have backfired. They've hurt Europe a lot more than they've hurt Russia. The ruble is the strongest it's been in seven years, the strongest currency in the world, according to Bloomberg News. And it has created a division in the world. It is essentially the Americans have cut their noses off despite their faces because who is being punished by these sanctions? It's the West, not Russia, who has joined with China and the rest of the world, India, Latin America, Africa, they're not standing with Ukraine. They may not agree with the invasion. They don't like to see a war going on, maybe. But they have not participated in the sanctions against Russia. A new economic, commercial, monetary system is being created before our eyes that excludes the United States and the West. And that includes the majority of the population of the world. I sometimes think that leaders in Washington, of course, they know that China is an economic powerhouse and soon to become the largest economic power in the world. They know this, but psychologically they act in a colonial way that they still think this is the China of 50 years ago or the Russia of, of, of 40 years ago. They could just push these countries around or India 
is just some backwater. This is not the case anymore. India has got a huge middle class now. It's a powerful nation. China, obviously, even more. So you cannot treat these countries in this way as just uh, colonial co countries of uh, non-white peoples that you can push around. And this is the way uh, the Western governments and Europe uh, is more, most depressingly has become even more dependent on the United States when all along they should have been independent and played a neutral role between the United States and Russia and having good relations with both and develop their own economy and their own system. No, but you, you, Russia, United, sorry, Europe is totally under the control of the United States in a way that is shocking to me. So the United States is hurting itself. The dollar is threatened as the world reserve currency. It's, it's weakening its position in the world in a war that they thought they would weaken and overthrow. Russia weakened it, as Lord Austin said, the aim of this war is they pushed Russia too far and they fought back and they wanted them, as I said, to cross the line into Ukraine to unleash the economic war and the information war. They could never have shut down RT America. Uh, in Europe, RT and Sputnik are illegal. They could never have done all the censorship that is and the pressures that are being put on small independent media outlets like our own. This could never have happened without the invasion as well. So they just couldn't wake up one day and say, well, RT is finished. RT America, uh, or in Europe to ban it. This could never have happened. Uh, they couldn't do the insane things like banning Russian cats and firing Russian music conductors and banning tennis, Russian tennis players from Wimbledon. All of these things came because the invasion. The third thing they, do, they needed the invasion for is the proxy war, which we have no idea how long will last, but it is designed to bleed Russia. It is, that's why I think it was a trap the way Brzezinski admitted in a French magazine article in 1998 that the Soviet Union was lured into Afghanistan as a trap, and he used that word trap, Brzezinski did, to give it their Vietnam. I think the United States is trying to give Putin his Vietnam in Ukraine, but it's not going very well. Uh, wow. However, even if Russia should take all of the Onuvarosia from Donbass all the way to the border of Romania and Odessa and the whole thing, that's an enormous border to protect, and I think it'll be continual war along that border, even if Russia nominally wins the war, there will be constant warfare to weaken Russia. This is my view. And I don't think this is uh, a simple uh, out, a simple way out of this war unless Ukraine makes territorial concessions, as even Kissinger said they should. Uh, but there was Boris Johnson flying into Kiev saying, do not dare negotiate with Putin. So this is where we are right now with this, uh, this awful situation. Well, maybe I'm being a, a Pollyanna, but I actually look at this situation and I think given the amount of media suppression, I'm impressed by how many people know the truth, not by how many people are fooled. When you get something like this, uh, I'll use the analogy of when you push down a balloon, when you push it on one area, it doesn't, it pops in another area. And I would say what we've seen in Sri Lanka and what we've seen in Holland and in Canada and in the UK with Johnson being forced out and with Schultz in trouble. I would say, and Joe, uh, do you think that, are you seeing people rise up around the world in some unexpected places? And do you think it's related to the media suppression that the media suppression has backfired? Because people do figure out the truth. They may ban RT and Sputnik in Europe, but people still figure out 
they talk to each other. What do you think, Joe? I, I absolutely agree. And I think uh, I should say that the people are not as dumb as some uh, leaders think they are. And they are aware of that. Uh, a democracy in this late stage, a, uh, at least the pretense of democracy anyway, is about managing a population. And uh, that includes especially in the information that they get. But they can't completely control what's going on. And social media is a big part of that. I think that's why we're seeing such efforts to ban people on social media platforms. And, and they're going crazy to try to stop online publications uh, such as ours and, or hinder us in any case, like shutting us out of PayPal, NewsGuard reviewing us. Uh, now the Grey Zone leaked emails saying that the British government is uh, a foreign office official was interested in uh, and, and concerned about us. So Consortium News, 10,000 readers a day. Why are they so concerned about these small publications that have, a, because it's a spark of dissent. And they know that there's timber out there, dry timber. Public is pissed. They're unhappy because of 40 years of neoliberal economic policies that have impoverished so much of the developed world, let alone the developing world, and, and it enriched so many billionaires. This is this world history. Whenever there's an incredible exchange uh, of wealth going from the bottom to the top, there's going to be anger at the bottom. They know this. There's militarized police in the United States, I think, uh, for that reason, to prepare for such events like that. So the people do, do understand. You're absolutely right, Lee. They figure things out. They talk to one another, and they have online sources. And social media has a big headache for the management of populations because people, anybody could start a publication. Anyone could start a webcast. Anyone could reach thousands, hundreds of thousands of people of Twitter followers. They, they've lost control of the narrative. In the old days, there were three TV networks in the U.S., and uh, they were more easily dominant. The story of Lyndon Johnson would have all three TVs in the White House. In the Oval Office, he would watch the coverage of the Vietnam War, and then he'd ring up the the anchors or the, the news directors of ABC, CBS, and NBC and chew them out if he didn't like their coverage. We, you can't call hundreds, millions of people uh, around the world who have uh, more and more influence on social media. So they, this is the real trouble for governments in thinking that they have kind of uh, all, you know, they have some kind of omnipotence to do what they want. They realize that they cannot do it without managing the population. And we're seeing explosions, yes, in Sri Lanka. And that's just based on pure economics, again, food and fuel prices. And that is a consequence of these sanctions, again, which somehow the idiots in Washington and in Brussels thought was going to bring down Putin and not threaten their own, their own political survivals. I, I, how's Joe Biden doing uh, politically yeah. I mean, after all of these sanctions? I mean, again, the American people, the gasoline prices is probably the greatest barometer of political it's sad to say that that, but that's it. And other economic issues, obviously, that's number one. Plus, people don't want to send their kids off to war. Uh, they're smart enough to know that those that war in Iraq they've figured out by now was not only illegal but unnecessary and outrageous. And the U.S. should not be meddling all over the world, but attend to the problems we have at home. Like, how about a some kind of a national health insurance system like the rest of the civilized world has? So, people are aware and social media is growing that awareness a lot of crap of course on social media and nonsense and trolls it's a cesspool but the but people in control of trying to control a narrative of uh what they're doing and uh, look at julian assange i have to bring him up they have thrown this guy in a dungeon because he revealed the truth about their uh, outrageous behavior in Iraq and Afghanistan, and not just the United States, but many other governments. So this is no different than any tin pot dictator throwing a local reporter in the, in jail for exposing his wrongdoing. And this is done on a grand scale, and he is a symbol of this repression 
of of reporting that we're seeing at, to the point where the British and American governments in particular are threatening their own image as so-called supporters of free press and democracy. They know that this does not uh, align with their protestations that they are for the free press and all of their propaganda about that. And yet they're still going to punish this guy because he's too dangerous and too big to free. And this is one of the this is the biggest symbol. And now it's it's now seeped down to lower levels like Consortium News, where we have all these moves against us and other websites because uh, they can't control it anymore. And it's a dangerous moment for them. And you're right. People are starting to rise up. I don't know what will happen in the United States. It's very difficult to predict how populations we, we but social uprisings and violence and riots are not uncommon in U.S. history. But whether there's some kind of an organized resistance to what's going on. Uh, this is the trouble I've always thought about the United States, that it would be disorder, disorderly and, and it would be infighting amongst groups who are opposed to the same power structure. That's what I fear about anything that could happen in the U.S. Remember, Joe, this Thursday, is, this Thursday is Bastille Day. So go, go ahead, Jason. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say if we have any updates on the status of Julian Assange. We had heard that they were talking about extraditing him to the United States, and obviously his health is deteriorating there in prison. Have you have you heard anything? Yeah, well, I was in London. I was at the press conference that uh, his wife and uh, his lawyer, Jen Robinson, gave on the day that Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, signed the extradition order. Uh, they have now filed for an appeal. They're appealing that decision to the high court. That well, they're asking for the high court to accept their appeal. They're also doing what is called a cross appeal, <clears throat> because when the lower court judge initially ruled after his extradition hearing, she agreed with the United States on every point that he uh, that it was not a political offense. She ignored that he'd been spied on in the jail by uh, the CIA through a Spanish security company. Uh, she ignored the freedom of press issues. She ignored uh, all of these political matters but and agreed with the U.S., but she said he could not be extradited and she was discharging him because of his health, his mental health, his suicidal tendencies, and the condition of American prisons. Together, it would cause him to commit suicide. She was convinced by the expert now, testimony. But, now, let well, me ask you this, yeah, and, and we only have time for a yes or no, but okay. do you think Bojo being out of there as prime minister will affect the Assange situation at all? No. No, I'm afraid not. I don't think any Tory leader is going to change. I think only Jeremy Corbyn yeah. as prime minister would have changed that. Wow. Unfortunately, and, and I talked about how they took Corbyn out a few years ago, and I saw that when I was out in London. But Joe Loria, great job, great appearance by Joe Loria. Thanks for being on the show, Joe. Take care of yourself. Okay, good to talk to both of you. Bye-bye now. Take care. Good to talk to you. Take care. Let's take great a short guess, break, mate. Jason. Yeah. Yeah, but when we come back, let's talk about more of the issues and the upcoming potential revolution worldwide that I'm seeing brewing. And we'll talk about it here on The Backstory. Live from the Empire of Lies, the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. This is a backstory. I want to thank Joe Laurie once again. I'll tell you, I a couple of years ago, 
I did a visual for Assange where I hung out and watched it in Lafayette Park uh, across from the White House. And Joe Lauria came out and spent many hours with me when I was doing that. And so I'm glad he brought up Assange. And yeah. he, he walks the talk. He doesn't yeah. just talk about Assange. He was out there. So it was great to talk to Joe. And I think you can tell we, we like each other. Yeah. Uh, so it's great to have him on. Absolutely. Coming up this hour, Daniel Czar and Jason, take us to the next segment. This is the backstory. Now, there's a famous quote from the hockey player Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky said the reason he's successful is he did, didn't skate where the puck was. He skated yeah. where the puck was going. Yep. In other words, he was able to anticipate the news, the, the, the puck. And my metaphor here is one reason I've been able to be somewhat successful as a journalist is I like to skate where the news cycle is going, not yeah. where the news cycle is. I could mm-hmm. tell Russiagate was going to be big. That's why I got into it early and wrote the piece that I put up under Roger Stone's byline on Breitbart before people were really talking about Russiagate. And you were skating to where the puck was going. Yeah. Right. And that's why I got into Ukraine. Here's where the puck is going. It's obvious to me. People are, are blowing off steam in countries. And like I said about, about that analogy about pushing down a balloon, does it make sense that if you push yeah. down a balloon, it pops and it's unpredictable where you push down one part and then another part of the balloon pops up? Who would have seen Sri Lanka yeah. as part of this? You, I'm not sure I even understand. Saying? Yeah, I'm not sure I even understand the connection now. But I mean, the analogy is good. It's just, you know, you, you sense it, right? I mean, it, it's almost like that quantum entanglement. Things don't need to be necessarily next to each other to be affected or connected. And I mean, just everybody is the two years of lockdowns, the economy disaster everywhere, all this constant pressure that there's well, going to be a worse. Let, let, let me ask you, who's Russia fighting against? Who's Russia's primary adversary? The United States of America. I disagree. Russia's told you and the people on the other side have told you who the primary adversary is. The adversary is what they call the liberal world order. The liberal world, or the world, new world, right. world okay. order. Right. And I was, right. I was just sort of feeling like the United States is pushing that. No, no. And you're right. You're right. Globalist, but I, really. Yeah. Yeah. I'm calling this specifically. If you think Russia's primary adversary, for instance, is Ukraine, what happened That's in Sri wrong. Lanka doesn't make any sense. How does that relate? Right. What does that have right. to do right. with Ukraine? But if you see the primary adversary, adversary as Russia's against the new world order, what happened in Sri Lanka makes perfect sense. Right. It was people in Sri Lanka who were not happy with the environmental agenda of who? The WEF? Yeah, liberal world order. Does that make sense? So yeah, it does. It, You're right. You have you have to define the adversary properly to understand that it all fits. And what happened in Sri Lanka 
makes perfect sense. And in fact, Bojo being losing out yeah. is because even though he advocated for Brexit, that was a way people in England voting for Brexit wanted to get away from the New World Order. But he he was suckered into it. He was still part of the New World Order. He was still yeah. part of the WF and that Davos crowd and everything. And what's happening in Holland with the Dutch farmers clearly fits into that. Does it make sense? No, it does. Yeah. And so, and the the and then with Tyrese on the line, so we're going to get to calls in one second. But mm -hmm. the other thing to look at this and understand is that when you see that this is the new world order is the adversary, when you see that. You can also see why they're fighting so hard and why they're suppressing stuff, because they 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 also want people to think this is about Ukraine. Right. It's not. It's Ukraine is a proxy for the new world order. And it's not even about specifically the U.S., because what is the U.S.? What is the United States? Is the United States the Biden administration? Is it Donald Trump? Is it. Canadian truckers, do you follow me? Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is, the, the answer is yes. There are significant parts of the population in all those camps. Yeah. And I brought up Canadian truckers because you notice that resonated in the U.S. Yes. Do you see what I'm saying, Jason? Yes, yes. And so uh, so let's get to Tarif, 202-521-1320. Tarif, what is on your mind? How y'all doing? Thank y'all for taking my call. Um, <clears throat> here I go. I got three comments. First comment is the euro is is um, a little bit under the dollar. Dollar is stronger than the euro. The, the euro is felt underneath the dollar now. It was equal, but now it's under the dollar. My second um, comment is um, the hormone system. There's reports on Telegram. But I got to wait and find out if it's true or not. But it's starting to circulate that it seems like Russia might have got their hands on one of the high-mile systems. There's a rumor circulating that um, some Ukrainian units sold one of those high-mile systems along with the missiles to the Russians for like $1.1 million. Whoa. See. So we'll see by Monday. I mean, excuse me, by tomorrow or whatever, if that's a rumor or if it's true or not. So we'll see about that. My third comment is dealing with um, AMLO speaking with um, Biden, and Biden is basically desperate because he needs the OPEC plus to increase the petroleum. He's meeting with um, the Saudi prince tomorrow. He's supposed to be meeting with AMLO today, I think. And um, AMLO— Yes, he, he, he did meet with AMLO today. That's correct. True. That's good. Uh, with AMLO, you know, he's an intermediary for um, Venezuela. I didn't know that. And also, you know, Mexico nationalized the um, the uh, the uh, petroleum um, refineries, for what I've been told. And AMLO can increase the, the um, oil production, or he can decrease it, hurting Joe Biden. And also, he can really he can stop he can let the refugee the, excuse me the migrants cross the border. So he's something like to me, AMLO. I realized this week he's something like an Erdogan in a way. He can play his cards like Erdogan because he got a backing of a whole bunch of people in Mexico where 
it's gonna be kind of it's gonna be kind of whole hard to over um, to have a coup against um, AMLO because they got a lot of people that's leaning to the left in Mexico. So we'll see in the next week or so how much pull he got. And hopefully, ex Biden about Julian Assange supporting him, and hope, hopefully Biden can support Julian Assange before before him to resign. Thank you for taking my call, gentlemen. Thanks, Trey. Great yeah, call as usual. Uh, so, Lee, uh, what happens Amlo, if Russia... Course... Yeah, go ahead, Jason. Well, what happens if Russia gets that high, Mars? They reverse engineer it and somehow jam it up so it doesn't work anymore? Well, they it, it allows them to figure it out. And they've, of yeah. course, got anti-missile systems, hmm. very good anti-missile systems. So yeah. it allows their anti-missile systems to be able to fight this particular thing more effectively. Yeah, maybe they'll know about frequencies it's communicating on or something like that. In fact, the the French uh, were hesitant to send, uh, I believe it was an anti-missile system, but I could be wrong, could be a missile system, Mm. because they thought Russia might get a hold of it. Right. And sure enough, Russia immediately got a hold of it. Wow. And France resented doing that because... (laughs) No, they they were mad because of course, yeah. There's there's no way Ukraine can control it, and the fact that it was apparently sold to Russia, that's a rumor that's flowing around. But that's mm-hmm. you know you talk about Ukraine is a corrupt country, and they, if they get the missiles, they'll sell them to the highest bidder. Yeah. Well, Russia can be the highest bidder. Really bad. Does it make sense? Yeah. Of now, course. what's going I mean, this... on with Biden in in Saudi Arabia is interesting because. Yeah. And Caleb Moppin had a good monologue last night, and he was ranting about it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. He was saying, think about what is the argument that the, the world should not deal with Russia in terms of oil? What's the argument that no country should buy oil from Russia? Just to hurt them, it's because Joe they, Biden wants it. Well, they, they argue that because Russia is being mean to a, a, a foreign country, Ukraine— yeah. However, have you looked into what Saudi Arabia has been doing to Yemen? Yemen? Yeah, right. Exactly. How is that good? And as a matter of fact, they're even less capable of defending themselves than Ukraine, aren't they? And they also call Putin a dictator. You heard, heard that. That you is know, really bothersome, considering the, what Joe Biden does. And who's the leader of Saudi Arabia? The king. Right. That's an actual dictator. Right. And, and he, is he an elected king? Oh, Definitely no. No. <laughs> and does he have an oppressive regime? You know, they've yes. had a huge amount of beheadings lately. Mm. So everything you want to accuse Russia of and say, well, Russia, we shouldn't buy oil from them because Putin's a dictator. You mean like the king who does the beheadings? Yeah. Oh, no, no, not as bad. But notice the U.S. is not making the argument that we should make Saudi Arabia, they're not talking about them at the G7. Right. You notice that? I did. I mean, this hypocrisy is what makes me just basically not trust anything, Joe Biden says. Right. And it's such obvious hypocrisy. Yes. That that just, it's not hard to figure out the guy who's a king who does public beheadings might be worse than Putin. Yeah. Maybe. So if your standard is violating human rights, let, let's look into Saudi Arabia, shall we? Yeah, they won't do that, though. Because as I say, 
the adversary really is the liberal new world order, they call it. And yeah. what I see happening, why I brought the where the puck is going, it's obvious to me the revolutions that we're seeing in Sri Lanka and in Holland and with Bojo, it's just the start of it, Jason. Do you agree with that? Uh, I agree with what you're saying. I hadn't thought about it really before now, but yeah, I think what you're saying is correct. It's, it's, it's worrisomely. And, and you can't say where it's going to spring up. For instance, right. in the U.S., it could be that some truckers and farmers in the U.S., I'm, I'm making this up because there's nothing I've heard of, but in some place like Iowa, shut down Des Moines. They, they do a blockade of Des Moines, and that creates a supply line crisis, which then, you see what I'm saying? They could yeah. create a, a supply chain problem that creates food crisis in New York. Yep. So something in Iowa springing up could result in California or Chicago running out of food. Does it make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah, everything's all interconnected. Right. And they would be able to do that. And I, I, I don't think at a certain point, what happened in Sri Lanka was, you've seen the footage, right? Uh, well, the people swimming in the presidential pool and all that, yeah. What happened there was they had an overwhelming number of people, right? It mm -hmm. wasn't 20 people showed up. It was a oh, lot yeah. of people showed up. Yeah. And uh, at a certain point, a lot of people... And that's what I'm saying it's getting to. That's what you're going to start seeing, mass protests. And uh, that's what, what I think is coming, especially and uh, and all over the world. Mm. It's going to start being solidarity among countries and among disparate people. And I'm going to tell you something else, because we talk about the left-right split. I'm not saying anything negative. Both our guests today are on the left. But I'm not talking about them. But if a coalition is built, it will not come from the left. It will come from the right, building coalitions. The left, too many of them are on the woke side, identity politics side. Mm -hmm. They don't seem to see that some of the things they believe in, the environmental agenda, the woke agenda, plays right into the liberal new world order. Right. I think they probably think that liberal new world order is a good thing. They they just don't think deeply. Yeah, that's right. And people, that's why the people we have as guests on the show are real leftists. And one sense that they don't have, and the reason I've been bring, I'll bring up Bastille Day, where I've been looking to what happened in Russia in 1917, is it's helpful to look at past revolutions to see how things worked. Yeah. In Russia, for instance, all the debates that we have, you know, today, even on the right, people saying, well, do we do we trust fill in the blank, Steve Bannon or whoever? Right. And by the way, don't. But yeah, those debates are common in a time of revolution. You're always going to have people trying to discuss whether one participant in the revolution is really down with the revolution. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Well, you got to always be and worried about infiltration. Right, exactly. 
infiltration is a constant problem. And the reason you mm-hmm. can't dismiss it is infiltration is sometimes real. Yes. Sometimes it's real danger. And so you have to be asking that question. But mm-hmm. the left is, in a weird way, they're at war with themselves. And the identity politics left splits the left into such granular portions where you get the Hispanics. You see this in New York in the bodega thing, mm-hmm. I think. That's two, it's Hispanics, in a sense, versus black people. But Eric Adams, the mayor, have you been surprised by where Eric Adams, by him taking the side of bodega workers? Have you been surprised by that, Jason? Well, has he done that, though? I mean, they put the guy in Rikers yes. Island. Eric Adams basically no, just. Eric Adams, Eric, look in, Eric Adams, no, he's been explicit and very clear. He's with the bodega workers. But what does that mean? I was surprised. Did he get the guy out, did he get the guy out of jail? They they did because they reduced really? his bail. But but Eric Adams has also been making public statements against the guy who got killed. Well, that's killed. the first good thing that he did. Yeah, I see that now. I hadn't seen that. Eric Adams supports hardworking bodega clerk Jose Alba over self-defense. Well, I hope they let him out of jail. I mean, you know, the problem is... The police have been doing nothing. If if people weren't put in these situations, here is a picture I haven't seen where the young kid is grabbing the guy. He's a much older guy, this Jose Alba. So, I mean, yes. I hope Eric Adams does something right. He's, he's, he was 37 years old and the guy was 61. Yeah. And the age difference matters in a sense because even though, see, legally the issue is it's hard to tell and even the footage doesn't show he's not allowed to kill him in self-defense unless he thought he was going to be killed. Uh-huh. In other words, Jason, if someone takes a swing at you, does you that make sense? You can't and just like punch, shoot him a million him. times. They have to have a deadly weapon for you to use deadly force. Right. It needs to be deadly force, in especially in New York needs yeah. to come back against deadly force. However, right. the age, the relative age. Right. Is a, a punch could be deadly forced to a 60-year-old guy from a 30-year-old guy. And he's a big guy. So a big yeah. guy in his 30s punching you yes. could be perceived as. And, and what matters is, was it, did the guy who's getting punched have a reasonable fear that that could be a deadly attack. And he could yeah. say, look, I'm 61. Do you, do you know another factor is that what? can come up in court? And I'm not saying it applies in this case, but I happen mm. to know this. I'm on blood thinners because of my stroke. Oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. A punch so, could be deadly, right. So don't try to punch me, Jason, because I, I can not. kill you. <laughs> I'm just saying. No, but it's yeah. true, not, not about killing you. Blood thinners, <laughs> if I know I'm on blood thinners, it doesn't matter if you didn't know it. Right. Right? If yeah. I know I'm on blood thinners and that a punch could be deadly to me, yes. I'm, I can be found not guilty. Right. You're justified in using deadly force. Right. Legally. Legally justified. Right. And so and that's ultimately what the issue here is. I see this as another 
Soros-funded DA getting pushback. Exactly. But see, the thing is, everything that you're saying is, okay, in a best-case scenario, this guy, Jose Alba, he'll be able to sit in court for the next five years and maybe not, you know, he'll get out of jail eventually if a lawyer can work this out properly. But if Eric Adams actually did his uh, job properly and if uh, DA... um, Bragg would do his job properly, then 60-year-old guys would not have to stab 30-year-old guys because the 30-year-old guys would realize that New York City is a place where you cannot do crime or you're going to go to jail. Instead, they've spent the last two years cultivating the exact opposite, which is a climate where criminals believe they control the streets and can do whatever they want without repercussions. And it puts everybody in a dangerous situation. And I think I think Adams is pushing back against that. And it'll be interesting to see what the reaction he gets from the Democrats is, whether Democrats stand with him, because it's not a winning strategy to be the party of crime. Right. (laughs) But they are. (laughs) Right. And they are. And I think Eric Adams is pushing back against that. But it remains to see how that goes for him. He's doing a terrible job as Mayor Lee. Well, it must be said compared to what? Uh, Compared to anything, because obviously the previous mayor was terrible. But this guy is almost I mean, it it feels like he's doing literally nothing other than giving press conferences where he demonstrates his marginal education and inability to properly form sentences in the English language. And he doesn't even react in the way you – and I don't mean to be disparaging. There are people who have less education than other people but are still smart and clever and can solve the problems that they're faced with and do the job that they've selected effectively. I do not think that any of that applies to Eric Adams. He strikes me as a fatally stupid man who is unable to solve problems. And, I mean, when he won, I thought, well, all right, at least – he was an NYPD officer. He'll be very law and order focused and he'll have solidarity with the police. None of that has happened. He's just a total idiot, in my opinion. Well, well you, you need to watch how this thing evolves because this bodega sure. story, I, I think I think it's going to benefit Eric Adams. I think well, he's being and look, look into the statements he's made. He's made the statements publicly. So if word hasn't trickled down, but we got Daniel Zara online. So let's take a short break. We'll be back with more and guest Daniel Zara on the backstory. Back on the backstory on 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Joining us now, great friend of the show, always insightful, Daniel Czar. Welcome, Daniel. Uh, thanks for having me. So let's talk about China policy via Australia. You recently reviewed a book by Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia. So First, I'm going to have you just, for those of us who are not familiar with Australian politics, who is Kevin Rudd 
and what's his political background so we get a context of who this man is. Uh, Kevin Rudd was a Labour prime minister of, uh, of um, Australia. Um, he uh, is a very, very moderate guy. Uh, he opposed the war in Iraq, which sort of puts him towards the left of the political spectrum. But otherwise, he's a very much a kind of a Tony Blair kind of candidate, uh, 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 politician. And um, uh, he is also a trained uh, China scholar who speaks Mandarin uh, fluently, uh, has spent a lot of time in China, and as prime minister, um, met with um, top Chinese uh, officials, including Xi uh, Jinping. So that puts him in a really unusual position, uh, a guy who sort of knows the top brass, uh, knows the country, knows the language, and is therefore in a position to, you know, a good position to speculate as to where things are going. And his book is called The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the U.S. and Xi Jinping's China, correct? Yes, that is correct. So th that gives us some sense of what the book's going to be about. How, wh what, did you, what did you think of the book? Well, the, you? the book is very good. I mean, he's, I, mean, I mean, this guy, Rod, is a very serious guy. He's a serious scholar. Uh, he wrote a good book. But it's very it's what's interesting with the book and what I think you'll find interesting is that he goes through um, all the things, all the forces that are impelling the U.S. and China toward a military conflict. And then he ends up with about 50 pages on how to avoid the conflict. But the trouble is the last 50 pages are a good deal less convincing than the first 350 uh, so what? So what? The impression you come away with is that there's a showdown moment. Uh, that the, the, the two countries are, are on a collision course. Uh, the U.S. itself is very aggressive. Uh, it's growing more aggressive, and it seems that something is gonna happen. Now, doesn't sound uh, good. No, it doesn't sound good at all. It's the it's the worst imaginable nightmare. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's the Ukraine times times what twenty. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, China, I, I mean, the, the U.S. Is, is, is very aggressive about probing, probing into China's backyard, just as NATO was with Russia. Um, and if the shoe was on the other foot, if the, if the, if the Chinese Navy, Navy was patrolling off the coast of San Diego, the U.S. would be, would be going bonkers. Yeah. But that's what the U.S. is doing. And it just seems that a collision is unavoidable. And it seems to me the U.S. has a more schizophrenic relationship with China even than they have with Russia. What I mean by that is the extremes, higher highs and lower lows. The U.S. never had a significant economic relationship with Russia in the past 20, 30 years a similar relationship, but they've had a significant relationship in terms of using Chinese manufacturing and borrowing money from China on the higher highs. And now when I hear the rhetoric, it is, they, they make, they talk about the Chinese Communist Party and it's very much a Cold War red menace kind of shallow analysis 
just saying something that's designed to strike fear in people. So do you, do you see what I'm saying? Do you agree, Daniel? Yeah, I think the U.S. has been very, very provocative. I mean, it was, you know, it was aiding pro-independence forces in Tibet. I mean, imagine if China was, was aiding pro-independence forces in, uh, in New Mexico and Arizona. Uh, it, is, it has taken this issue over alleged genocide in, uh, in Xinjiang, in the, far, in the far west, and run with it. Um, and the evidence for, I mean, I, I don't want to whitewash the Chinese. I don't want, the, want, I don't want to make it seem as if the Chinese Communist Party are a bunch of angels. Um, because they they clearly are not. But nonetheless, genocide is a extraordinarily serious, obviously, and very potent charge. And there is remarkably little evidence to back it up. You know, so when you accuse a country of genocide, that is that is the rhetorical extreme. And you can expect a, a, an extreme reaction. And if you're going to do that, you've got to make sure you have your facts lined up. And the U.S. has not done that. And I'm with you. I'm, I'm somewhat mixed on China. But it's important, I think, to point out that China brought a lot of people out of poverty. And I never hear that brought up by Western media. They never give them any credit for what they did do which is bring a lot of people out of poverty. Is that correct, Gino? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, the, this is the great miracle of our age. I mean, essentially hundreds of millions of people have been lifted, lifted out of serious poverty and essentially, you know, you know, uh, you know transformed into you know, something approaching a modern urban lifestyle. And many of them have been transported into the into the middle class. But this is a this is one of the great the great feats of of of, uh, of modern history. And so yeah, so I think the Chinese deserve a little bit of credit for that. Certainly, certainly they've done a better job than India has, for example. And I understand. Uh, did you see the headline that India is about to surpass China as the most populous nation? Wow. Yeah, just interesting. Well, uh, you know. You know, interesting enough, China actually has a population crisis, but it's the opposite of the crisis we were led to expect. The the crisis is that the birth rate is declining drastically. It's probably below the replacement rate. And so therefore, China's share of the East Asian population is actually shrinking. To what extent was that affected by the one-child policy? Weren't there many, many years where people were aborting female children to have a male child? I mean, if you have a society that's all men, it's a little tough to reproduce. Well, yes, that, that certainly is a factor, no question about it. But also it's a factor is that as the cost of living is skyrocketing, real estate is skyrocketing, the cost of education is rising very strongly. So therefore, the cost of raising a child has become prohibitive. This is, you know, this is, China's not the only country with this problem. The U.S. has this problem. Europe has it as well. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, it's especially acute in China. And, um, and China's uh, population has apparently has peaked and may be starting now at this very moment to be edging downward.
So, Daniel, was there anything in Kevin Rudd's book, The Avoidable War, that struck you, that either surprised you or struck you as especially profound? Well, yeah, I think that what's really interesting about it is that, uh, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, like, like, like wars develop between two nations that, you know, that sort of like, you know, see the same thing in opposite terms. I mean, China has, has, serious concerns, serious fears. Um, it's bordered by 15 countries, the most, the most countries on its border of any, of any nation except for, uh, except for Russia, which is also bordered by 15 countries. Um, it has a, an inner ring of, of non-Chinese ethnic groups, which are also troublesome, and the U.S. has done its best over the years in order to, to you know, to, uh, uh, you know, excite independence, pro-independence tendencies among those people. Um, and, and China is very paranoid about the U.S. Uh, probing its coastal, its coastal defenses, uh, invading its home, its backyard. Um, and China is very worried that the U.S. is heading for a confrontation. So therefore, China is, you know, is gearing up for a confrontation. So the, the, it just seems it, Rudd's book, although he tries to tries very hard to end on an optimistic note, he really winds up sending the opposite message. That I think is profound. Now we we both express some reticence about China, but I'm going to say once again, China. You'll hear on Fox News, for instance, referred to in hushed tones, and then they mention CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. But I don't hear the same hush tones about Saudi Arabia. And I'm not saying, and can you think of any way in which Saudi Arabia is not a worse country than China? Saudi uh, Arabia. Human rights. <laughs> Saudi Arabia is the anything? worst country in the, Saudi Arabia is the worst country in the face of the earth. I mean, uh, I mean, I guess uh, you know it's in a. It's in well, a tell us what you really think, Daniel. <laughs> it's, 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 it's in a tight race with uh, with with North Korea, but it's it's really just a, uh, just probably the most extremely undemocratic uh, government imaginable. I mean, uh, MBS controls every last aspect of the government, the economy society, et cetera. It's all concentrated in one person's hands. Um, I mean, that, is, that isn't even the case in, in, uh, in North Korea. Um, you know, people disappear. They're terrified of saying anything that can get, get them in trouble because if they, if they say something bad, they can disappear in some rat hole of a prison for years and years. There's a 15% there's a Shiite minority in the country's eastern province, which also happens to be where the, the bulk of its oil deposits are located, and they are they are under siege. They have been, you know, they are they are treated the way the, you know, probably at least as bad, if not worse, than the Palestinians are treated in the occupied territories by Israel. Um, and so, you know, it's a it's a miserable hellhole of a country. And so, uh, but yes, you're right. I mean, the, the U.S. press adopts a very different attitude, um, and uh, and it's much more accommodating. Yeah, and, and we, we we just never hear about it. You, you don't hear the you know, except 
Now, we were talking before about how the battle in, in Ukraine, the Russia-Ukraine battle, is in some ways a proxy war of Russia versus the liberal New World Order and the WEF. And people in Ukraine have even said they represent the New World Order. Do you think the battle against China is that same proxy war in a different form? Oh, yeah, uh, totally. I mean, I mean, I don't know whether you want to call it the New World Order or just or just the American Empire. Um, but, you know, but um, the difference between between uh, between uh, between uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden is that Trump was a bit of an isolationist. And then Biden is a gung ho militarist. And Biden's slogan is, is uh, America is back. And what he's been trying to do since the moment he took office is to reassert American imperial power uh, around the globe to make up for the four lost years under Trump. Um, and it's backfiring really badly. I mean, he's got fools like Anthony Blinken in control or Jake Sullivan. Yeah. And, um, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's not going well. It's going really poorly in the Ukraine, where Russia is essentially winning. And, and the Ukrainian government is also beginning to lose really important propaganda battles. Um, and he's, he's in grave danger of sparking a war with China. And, and to repeat, I mean, there's nothing worse than a war with China. I mean, if you can list all the potential horrors that 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 that, that the U.S. may face over the you know in the coming decades, war with China is is at the very top of the list. Are you guys aware that they released a public service announcement yesterday in New York, giving you advice about what to do in the event of a nuclear blast? And they said to go inside and stay away from the windows, and that if you have any radioactive dust on your clothes, to put them in a bag and take a shower and wait for instructions. That's literally what the thing said. That assumes the water system is still working. Well, or electricity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the or whole thing is so stupid. I mean, it's going to be 4,000 degrees outside and they want you to go inside. I don't think it's right. going to matter. Exactly, exactly. Did they suggest duck and cover too? <laughs> no, I don't know. They just said go inside. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. Listen, I, I'm old enough to remember you know, huddling under my school desk right. during during uh, during uh, uh, drills. Mm -hmm. Now, Daniel, your, your review is <laughs> is up at weekly weeklyworker.co.uk, correct? Yeah. Yes. Now, as a writer for weeklyworker.co.uk, I assume you know the history of re revolutions, right? A bit, yeah. Yeah. So. I've been looking into some revolutions because I didn't know a lot of this history. So do you know much about one thing interesting from history that I've noticed a lot? I, I talked to Jason about it recently, and Jason knows a, a quite a bit. Neither of us knew anything about the Paris Commune. So do you know about anything about that, Daniel? Yeah, I do. I bet. It was uh, quite well, an so episode. Tell people. Yeah, tell people what the Paris Commune is and why it's significant today. Well, the Paris Commune erupted in, uh, in 1871 after, uh, after the, the French lost a disastrous war with Germany. Um, 
And uh, the, the leader of France was Napoleon III, who was actually captured by the Germans. Um, and uh, the, the, the German army was, uh, came within a, you know, it was a few miles outside of, uh, of Paris and essentially um, uh, wanted to negotiate a peace and a very conservative government uh, was going to negotiate a, a punitive peace, uh, a, a peace that would be very unfavorable, unfavorable to, to, uh, to France. And the people of Paris, uh, especially the lower classes, rose up in revolt against this prospect, uh, drove the, uh, the, the government out of the city, declared a, a commune, a, a, a Parisian republic. Uh, and um, when French troops were sent in to quell the, uh, the uprising, they fought them off for months. Uh, and finally, the, uh, the Paris Commune ended with a, in a, in an, literally in an inferno as fire broke out in the city, and French troops ended up shooting thousands of communards. So, uh, so it was a, a dreadful, bloody episode uh, that broke out in the heart of Europe. And they had to send in about 150,000 troops, I understand, to put down the Paris Commune and the Communards. Does that sound about right, Daniel? I'm not sure. I'm not sure how many troops there were, but of course the, the numbers were overwhelming. They were, they, yeah. That that's the point. They were overwhelming. I think I'm about right on on those numbers. But if they killed thousands with overwhelming numbers, you you can guess it would have been at least 100,000. Yeah. So there's a uh, there's a reference to it in uh, Hemingway's uh, The Snow, Snows of Kilimanjaro, where he uh, describes uh, you know, living in a, in a poor Paris uh, uh, neighborhood where memories of the, uh, of the repression of the communards is still fresh. This would be the 1930s. And the Paris Commune was in some ways the world's first worker-controlled government. Is that correct? Yes, it was. It was in some ways. Uh, there was actually a, a workers-controlled government, believe it or not, in, uh, in Florence, Italy, in uh, 1381. If you want to think with the, uh, with the, 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 the wool weavers rose in revolt, drove out the oligarchs, and uh, installed a... Uh, a workers' government for about three years. Now, I, 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 by the way, great job, Daniel. I was uh, impressed by your level of knowledge, but I'm not surprised by it. Thank if you. If that makes sense. Yes. So, great explanation. And the the Paris Commune, Marx wrote about it too. Marx wrote an essay about it, and they were aware of the, the Paris Commune. In 1917, in Russia, correct? correct? They were aware of it historically. Yes. Now, the reason I'm talking about that and interested in it is I'm seeing the early stages. When you look at what's going on in Sri Lanka and Holland with the Dutch farmers, do you start to see a little bit there might be something boiling up, a, a revolutionary spirit? Worldwide, yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, things are things are happening. I mean, it's 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 still really confused, really inchoate. Uh, it's unclear. You know, there's no leadership. Uh, but um, but yeah, no, things are cracking in a lot of places. 
Uh, I mean, Zambia, Lebanon, Sri Lanka is really scary. Uh, um, Ecuador, uh, and you know, and and the United States. I mean, I mean, things are not going well here. People are really upset. There's nothing happening in the streets yet, but you know, but but big things happened a mere a mere two years ago with uh, with Black Lives Matter, and I and I think that that America that there's a, there's a, a deep well of discontent, uh, which is worsening. So yeah, so I think we're we're definitely entering into a period of uh, of uh, of growing political turmoil. And I think people in the U.S., a lot of them looked at the Sri Lanka footage of of what was going on there, and probably said to themselves, "I was not aware we could swim. I didn't know we could. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that." So if you see a protest in the U.S., I swear to God. You're going to see people in the U.S. look for the pool because right. that looked fun, right? Now, what yeah. was, what did you notice about? Talk about Sri Lanka a little bit. What What did you notice, Daniel? Well, Sri Lanka is a is a, is a country. It's formerly known as Ceylon. It was a it was the model British colony prior to independence. Uh, very well educated. Um, very uh, very. Um, Orderly, uh, very well governed, uh, with a very advanced political system, um, and uh, and but also with a poisonous relationship between the uh, the um, the Tamils who are Hindu and the uh, Sri Lankans who are uh, Buddhist. Um, you know, it's funny. People always assume. You know, they're actually. There's a. I, I once read a book where somebody asserted that you know that the one religion which is totally blameless, totally incapable of violent repression, violent bigotry, is Buddhism. Well, it's not true. I mean, Buddhism yeah. is, is, is 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 as capable of it as any as anything else. And uh, and so the you know, so the relationship between, between the Sri Lankans and the Tamils. Just grew worse and worse until it broke out into utter civil war, um, and uh, and as a consequence, uh, the civil war was ruinous. Um, the the, uh, the the government then pursued a bunch of um, very reckless economic policies, and when I say reckless, I mean um, uh, borrowing very heavily. Distributing the benefits, but going deeper and deeper into debt. And in one famous incident, the government actually, on a whim, abolished the use of of, um, of artificial fertilizers, and demanded that Sri Lankan farmers use only organic fertilizers. As if, like, you know, as if some some environmental group had gotten the president's ear and convinced them up of this crazy scheme. And as a result, food production plunged by two thirds. Because no. you know, because organic fertilizers are not as effective as you know mm. as as artificial fertilizers. That is simply a fact. Um, so suddenly, the the country found itself running out of money when it couldn't pay its debts. Uh, it found itself with a you know with a with a a, a growing food shortage, um, and things really went to hell really fast. Um, so. So it just, it's just an example of how a country can sort of spin out of control and, you know, and, and go, over, uh, go over the cliff. 
Um, and but this is but again, this is the, the important thing is that it's not just Sri Lanka. A lot of other countries are you know are facing you know are are beginning to sense the same thing may be happening. I mean, China is having a run on the banks where the yeah, police violent where the police, run. Yeah, where the police are attacking depositors who want their money back. Uh, that's a bad thing. Yeah. That's a bad thing. It's a bad <laughs> thing. Yeah. No toaster. Right. Exactly. No. And do you think of the U.S. We, we talked about this before. I'm going to use two things that may not seem like they go, go together, but I think they're symbols of the arrogance and degeneracy of power. It's Nancy Pelosi's ice cream freezer. <laughs> and Hunter Biden's crack horse. Right. It may not seem like they go together, but I think they do actually. That people see those, and what 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 lesson is sent to the people? These these people don't live like you. Does that right. make sense, Daniel? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's this one rule. I've done Nancy Pelosi's husband, who was who was busted right. for drunk driving, then mysteriously is sprung from sprung from jail. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a there's a growing sense of you know that there's one rule for the top of ten percent or or one percent or point one percent, and another rule for everybody else. Um, and uh, and and the atmosphere in the U.S., as you know, is getting really really tense. And the tension does all attempts all attempts to alleviate the tension. Seem to be having the effect of making it worse. Yep. And and what you're pointing out about Sri Lanka and the the fertilizer, if anyone's, if, I don't know if you if you ever bought green cleaning products that are supposed to be good for the environment. My yeah. wife's, my ex-wife bought those, and she told me immediately she wanted to buy it because she wanted to help the environment. But she quickly found out they don't work. They don't clean. That they're, they're, they're not effective. <laughs> Well, I would just defend that slightly by saying that's true of many of them, but there are products you can find that do work. It generally is the case, though, that natural things take more time and more effort and aren't as aggressive and robust as some of these artificial things. And um, it's, it's a problem. It requires some balance because they're, you know, just the whole yin and yang of the universe there's a reason why these chemical things are so much more effective and what is any potential negative side effect of these right. much more aggressive no, chemicals. I agree with you. And the problem is you have to spend hundreds of dollars to figure That's out which products too. work. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's a difficult. certain amount of the arrogance of the bourgeoisie or just normal people trying yeah. to – does that make sense, Daniel? Yeah, but the, but the, but the problem is that the problem is our government is not working very well. In fact, in fact, it's not working at all, and so therefore, whenever people try to do something, it never comes out well, and it winds off, you know, uh, pissing more people off than it helps, you know. And the, you know, and we know what the problems are, we know what the solutions are, but our government is simply structurally, constitutionally incapable of carrying them out. I mean, that was, that was, that was the, the thing with the Supreme Court ruling on these administrative, uh, administrative policies. I mean, uh, you know, the, 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 I mean the, the court essentially struck down a major tool 
that the uh, that the that the the White House uses to limit greenhouse gases. Now, the New York Times said said, well, you know, I mean, the sol- solution is simple: is that Congress could simply enact these rules itself, rather than relying on these administrative agencies to do it for uh, for Congress. But the fact is, we Daniel, all know we're about we're about out of time. Yeah. But another fantastic appearance. Always great talking to you. And last question: a yes or no? If you were a betting man, does Joe Biden finish out his term as president? Do you think? Yes, by 54, 55 to forty-five margin. Okay, Jason. I don't think he's going to. No. Okay, fantastic appearance, Jason. Great job as guest. Co-host, Daniel Zarr, always like talking to you. Joe Loria, great talking to you again. Thanks very much. And we'll be great callers, as usual. And we'll be back tomorrow on The Backstory. Backstory.